Good evening. Welcome to Hanging with Bears. I don't know the episode number. We've got a very special guest tonight, Dr. E. Michael Jones. I had a I had a very specific set of questions I wanted to ask him about the 60s. I grew up Catholic, so he and I have a very common background, except, you know, I didn't uh, go into studying like he did. But we grew up in a similar environment, I believe. So I had some very specific questions I wanted to ask him, so I won't uh, give too much of it away here. But uh, stick around, and it's going to be very interesting. I'm really looking forward to it. Hear you better. Okay, I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Great. Um, thank you very much for being here. This is really, uh, it's an informal conversation show. We've had about 510 episodes and uh, everybody was really, really excited that you were going to come on here. Good. Well, I'm glad to be here. I had a, actually the question came into my mind and you came up as the person in the world that I most wanted to ask on this topic. Now we'll just jump right into it. I was raised Catholic. My parents went to Marquette in the late 50s. My dad graduated as a doctor in 1960, and I was born that same year. And my mom was raised in Illinois. My dad's southern Wisconsin. And I went to Catholic school from my first grade through fifth grade, and four of those grades were in Wisconsin. And I just thought you and I would have a lot in common because of, of both being raised Catholic. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have a good friend who was raised in uh, in Wisconsin. He never got over Wisconsin. Where was where was he, he was in the Dells? What was he, yeah from the Dells? Just from the Dells, yeah. Wisconsin Dells, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he went to Notre Dame. Uh, a very traumatic experience for him, and that's probably what we're going to talk about here. Yeah, my specific question relates to. I, I had a much more uh, pleasant memory of being raised Catholic, probably because of my situation. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, uh, five kids, of course, and I was the oldest of five kids, but we lived kitty-corner to the Catholic Church and right across the street from the convent. And so all of us kids that were old enough to go across the street, we would go out and hang out in the convent almost every weeknight. And the nuns were just in their, they were just in their evening relaxed demeanor and they loved having, having us over and we would play music, auto harps and guitars and harmonicas and sing songs so my memories of I mean of course the Catholic school thing was a big impression on me as well but I just had such lovely memories of, of being with the nuns and and learning music with them when I was really young my my question relates to um, kind of flashbacks that I'm having to being in first grade we were still um, Latin mass in 1965 and then when I went back to second grade, it had switched over to English mass. Would that have been the exact changeover to Vatican II? Um, 65 was an absolutely crucial year, absolutely crucial yeah. year. It was the end of the Vatican Council. Uh, it was the, uh, the year they promulgated uh, Nostra Aetate. It was the year that the uh, Jews broke the production code in Hollywood. It was the year uh, that Griswold versus Connecticut got handed down by the Supreme Court. That was a decision uh, to uh, ban uh, laws prohibiting the sales of, of contraceptives. That was the beginning of the uh, sexual revolution, I would say. Uh, so, yeah, it was, a it was a very important year. Yeah, well, the, 
the specific question that I came up with was, as I started to remember the curriculum that I had in first and second grade, we were very close to my first and second grade teacher, Sister Johnnell. She combined her father and her mother's names to because they used to choose their nun name. I don't know. If, yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Uh, so she was Sister Johnnell, and uh, she was really a, a great woman. It was her first year teaching when I was in first grade, so she had that that exuberance, very youthful, very excited to be teaching. Yeah. But she had a curriculum that I think, looking back on it, was um, it seemed like it came from like the national news media. Uh, they talked about smog. They would show us pictures of Los Angeles with all the smog. And shortly after that, a lot of the civil rights kind of um, right. topics came in. And I just looking back about it, it was very interesting that it, it seemed so national news oriented. So I'm what? curious if you knew about that. No, what what course was this? Was this the religion course? This was just well, we were in first and second grade, so they were just trying to teach us how to read and all, you know all the stuff we okay. do in first and second grade. I've got to yeah. go turn off a heater. I'll be right back. I hope you kept. I hope you kept talking while I left. I'm back. No, I, I was in, uh, I wasn't talking, I was, I was thinking though, uh, the other thing I mentioned uh, that happened in 1965 was that Carl Rogers showed up uh, at the Immaculate Heart Nuns Convent in Los Angeles and introduced them to sensitivity training, tea groups, uh, uh, which eventually wrecked the order, or wrecked that, certainly that branch of it. The Immaculate Heart Nuns were a huge order. Uh, my second cousin is in one of them. Uh, is that guy you mentioned? I'm not familiar with him. Carl Rogers, a Wisconsin boy who uh, became the, probably the leader of the third type, uh, the third school, third way of psychology. So first one would be Freud and uh, Jung and those people. And then you had uh, John B. Watson and behaviorism, B.F. Skinner, that group of people. And then the third way was Carl Rogers and Abe Maslow and a new group of people. And they used uh, tech... Yeah, yeah, okay. that was that was behaviorism, that was the second school, but uh, th this group of people uh, cr uh, created, um, I guess you'd call it non-directive therapy, where uh, Carl Rogers would simply nod every time you said something and kind of affirm what you said. That's in private, but what they introduced was uh, a form of uh, a group therapy that had been worked out in the Office of Naval Research by a Jew by the name of Kurt Levine. And it was a, a way of, uh, 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 the Quakers used this, they called it gentle persuasion, but it, it was basically peer group pressure to change behavior, subjecting peer group uh, people to peer group pressure. Now the nuns were especially susceptible to this because they lived in a community, lived in a community. So okay, this, this is exactly where I'm going with all this. This is perfect because I had this, when I started thinking about this, and like I say, I thought you would be the perfect guy to ask this question or series of questions to, was, were they, were they choosing to focus on Catholic nuns to roll this agenda out? I really think it was an agenda, looking back on it. And did, I wondered if they chose it because the teaching force was 100% female, because it was all very emotion-based. They were trying to appeal to fear with the with the they didn't call it climate change they called it you know smog and environmentalism at the time 
Yeah. So because a lot of people here may not know, but in the mid 60s, only nuns could teach Catholic school. And they changed that by 67 or 68. They started letting lay people because they couldn't get enough nuns to teach. We were at the end of the baby boom. It wasn't so much a prohibition as it was cheap labor. The Catholic, Catholic schools only really work if you have religious orders running them because they work for nothing. So now you have a situation where the nuns have basically evaporated, except for Africa. There are plenty of nuns in Africa. I, I know a lot of them uh, from uh, because of a nun that came here to Notre Dame. But uh, basically, uh, if you don't have religious orders, you're in a bind because in order to pay the teacher a living wage, which not a living wage, a family wage, so that he can support his family, you have to burden the parents with high tuition. And so there's always that problem. So the, I think uh, I think it was uh, deliberate. Uh, first, of, first of all, I smeared, I smeared the end of my question by tagging too much information on it. My the, the core of it was, are you aware if there was some kind of agenda that was being yes. handed down? Right. This is what I'm what I'm getting at. So I was the first I was the first one to break this story. Uh, about what happened to the Immaculate Heart nuns. And I did it because of Carl Rogers' assistant was a Catholic. And he came to me and told me the story. He said he felt bad because they basically liberated the nuns and they wrecked the order. And, and he was still trying to figure it out. We're talking about the mid to late 80s where he contacts me and we run the article in uh, Fidelity or, yeah, it was Fidelity at that point. Uh, and he's still trying to figure it out. And I'm saying, well, I'm trying to help him put the pieces together because Kurt Levine, that's psychological warfare. That's the Office of Naval Research. That's what they're doing. This is where he got the idea. And, and you're telling me that he didn't use it to uh, destroy the Catholic nuns? You had Abe Maslow, who was a colleague of, uh, a colleague of uh, Carl Rogers. He spoke to a group of nuns. He mentioned it in his, in his diary. He said... If they knew what I was doing, they wouldn't have cheered after I finished my talk. So Abe Maslow kind of knew that it was, he's a Jew. He knew that it, uh, he was in on the attack. And finally, I want to come back to that um, in a minute because I also have some personal experience with the human potential movement. And I was told by people that were around that, that movement that a lot of it came from military research, like human development research done by I didn't hear Navy, but I knew there were Jews involved, and I knew that um, they were they were trying to explore controlling humans right right after World right. War II. Right. This this was the main one of the main projects after World War II. They won the war, and now they're heavily involved in psychological warfare. And, and uh, the Korean War was part of it, the whole Man Manchurian candidate thing. Can you control people's minds? John B. Watson uh, had sort of started the idea, but from a crude behaviorist kind of perspective that didn't really work. It was really kind of stupid and crude. Watson was a, a Southern boy who just loved being around animals. And animals are different than human beings because animals are basically st stimulus response machines in a sense. And you can program them to do certain things within the parameters of what what they are. Where, and so he caught the idea. His book, Behaviorism, came out in 1915, right before World War One, And it was the science of controlling people. 
That's what it was. And he said, uh, don't uh, don't uh, complain about social engineering. War is social engineering. That's what they do to the soldiers. So you fast forward to uh, the war. Uh, we're in the middle of the war, and Gunnar Myrdal, the Swedish socialist, gets brought over here. And uh, he hangs around for about six months, and then uh, the, uh, the uh, Nazis invade uh, Norway or something like that. And he, he goes back home. He's the author of the book. He didn't write that book. I, I talked to uh, Alan Carlson, who was a fan. He's Swedish in background. He was a fan of Gunnar Myrdal. And I explained to him how he could not have written that book. It was written by the Psychological Warfare Establishment. It was called The American Dilemma. And it was an attempt to solve the race problem in America. Well, it was it was an attempt, basically it had people like Frank Notstein, uh, Louis Wirth, the sociologist from the University of Chicago. They were all in the office, all, all of these offices like the OSS, the Office of War Information. All of these groups got brought into the CIA when that was created a after the war. But they were all interested in forms of control. And I so the more I talked to Bill Colson, the more he started coming up with memories of like uh, Mrs. Rogers handing Colson's wife the address of the local Planned Parenthood operation because Colson, the Colsons had about five kids at that point. So subtle things like this, they were heavily involved in different, uh, worrying about differential fertility. Obviously the Catholics are having too many children. If we can get uh, the nuns, out of education, we may just disrupt this whole thing. I think that was what was really going on. Okay, interesting. The the thing that a lot of uh, younger people don't realize, I'm, I'm almost surprised how many people aren't aware how recruited into the civil rights movement the Catholic priests were between 66 and 72. What's your experience with that? Well, there was a, there was a huge conflict because the bishops were reluctant to, for, to to allow Catholic priests to take part in it. Now, this the Civil Rights Movement was the last hurrah of American Protestantism. It was a moment when they really felt that they had some type of purpose, they were doing something noble, and they were completely on board. Uh, and uh, it, 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 the Catholics had bishops like uh, Cardinal Kroll of Philadelphia who really didn't want the, the nuns and priests involved. This caused a big division because a lot of these nuns and priests thought this is the holy cause. Uh, you had a guy like uh, Thomas Merton who had a huge influence uh, on ca the ca Catholic life. Ca Thomas Merton's book, Seven Story Mountain, brought me back to the Catholic faith when I was in Germany. It was the only book in English in a German library. It was like right out of St. Augustine's uh, Confessions where some kid comes up. I know the kid. He was, in, he was, I was in a band with him eventually. But he came up to me and said basically, tole lege, like that kid in St. Augustine. Here's a book. Read it. And I immediately came back to the, the Catholic faith after I read it. He had a huge influence on... How old, how old were you at that time? 25. Okay. Uh, and uh, like... Uh, like my friend Peter Helland, uh, I felt that uh, college was a traumatic event uh, during which I lost my, I stopped going to church. It was much more traumatic for Peter Helland, my friend from Wisconsin, because he went to Notre Dame. Uh, and Notre Dame, I went, to, I went to a school that was a regional Jesuit school. I went to St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, which I went there because my father went there. And I lived at home. 
So I was spared a lot of what was going on. Like dorm life was a catastrophe for these people. Peter was destined. Peter wanted to become a, a priest. He wanted to go in the seminary. His father insisted that he go to Notre Dame, thinking it was the Notre Dame of the 1940s. And here he arrives there at like the high noon of sexual liberation, about 1970. His sister, his older sister is at St. Mary's. There's all kinds of sexual uh, experimentation going on in the dorms, in the chapels. I mean, it was, it was like a nightmare. And Peter just stumbled into it. And he was so traumatized that he left, uh, ran away from Notre Dame and just abandoned the Catholic faith at that point and has, has yet to come back. He's, he's kind of edging his way back, but he was so traumatized by that experience of basically being told by your father to go to something that you th he thinks is going to be this type of religious formation. And it turns out it's the exact opposite, precisely because Hesburgh was involved in all of the things we're talking about at exactly the same time. Let's say 19, 1965. Uh, you're older than me, but I experienced all of what you're talking about from watching my parents go through it, because I don't know if you remember, but back then you were either a Newsweek family or a Time family. Everybody had a subscription to one or the other. Very few people had both. We were a Time family and they were covering the same stuff, but the big cover that said, is God dead was a big deal. Yeah, I was in high school when that came out. Are we, we, we gradually were being influenced by all that stuff so that by 1971, they, they pulled us out of the Catholic Church. Yeah, the Time, Time magazine was the propaganda ministry for the United States government. Harry Luce, uh, this is not an exaggeration at all, okay? Harry Luce created Time magazine because he read, read Walter Lippmann's book of propaganda in the 1920s. So it was meant to be a form of control. By the time the 50s rolled around, after World War II, uh, his right-hand man was a, a, a guy by the name of C.D. Jackson, who was, was simultaneously being paid by the CIA and Time magazine. So there was practically total overlap. And after the World War II, the main crusade for the WASP ruling class, Jackson was a Jew. His name was Jacobson. But at that time, Jews pretended to be wasps because they were now wasps pretend to be Jews. But back then it was different. And uh, he was involved in psychological warfare. He's the man who, in effect, created the Holocaust narrative. He was in at the beginning. If, you, if the, the, One of the crucial uh, films that we're talking about here is uh, when uh, Eisenhower and Patton forced the citizens of Weimar, Weimar to go to Buchenwald to, to shame them because of what was ha supposedly happening in the concentration camps. The man who orchestrated that, the man, so when they get there, they see a lampshade that's supposed to be made out of human skin, uh, a pelvis with an ash, is supposed to be an ashtray, and two shrunken heads, completely preposterous conjuries of things that had nothing to do with the Holocaust. But the man who held those up was C.D. Jackson. He was crucial, a, a, a crucial figure in psychological warfare. He then became Eisenhower's campaign manager, and then he became head of psychological warfare under Eisenhower. So he's working for the CIA and Time Magazine at the same time. And Time Magazine is now working on the uh, social engineering of the Catholic population.
I, I look, I was, I was exactly like that. When I was 12 years old, I was 12 years old in 19, what was that, the year you were born. And, you know, you read Time Magazine. Shows up and you read it, uh, you know, from cover to cover. And that's where you get all your information. It was a very effective form of propaganda. And what can we go back to the um, the military research of the early 50s? I mentioned the human potential movement. Um, what, the one I was involved in was called Landmark Education, which was the outgrowth of EST. And there was a EST was rampant through California and the U.S. You, do you recall that Werner Erhard? Yeah. Yeah, he was a Jew from Philadelphia. His name wasn't Werner Earhart. Yeah, a Jew, a Jew from Philadelphia. In Ca California, was a crucial uh, uh, player in this regard through place like Esalen. Esalen was absolutely yeah, it was crucial. An offshoot of, of Esther. There was some people that had, I don't know. That, there was a lot of overlap in all that, and a lot of offshoots, a lot of copies of Est. Um, a lot of people went there. The guy who was there was uh, Fritz Perls. He was kind of the guru in residence. And uh, and Fritz Perl Fritz Perls was a student of Wilhelm Reich, so it was heavily uh, sex sexual liberation, you know, breaking the armor, the body armor, so that the real person could come out. And so he'd sit if he if if he you know he was always preying on young women there, and he'd get them to sit with him in the hot tub, and he'd work on them, and a lot of them just broke down completely under this thing, and a lot some of them committed suicide. So he was he was uh, a very bad influence, uh, but Esalen was where you came if you were uh, wanted to get involved in that kind of stuff. Well, there was a, a statistic sometime in the early '80s or late '70s that a third of Californian adults had done Est, which, if you think about the entertainment industry, a lot of cor a lot of corporate people were coming out of there. It was it was a big influence on culture at the time. Yeah. Bill Colson wrote an article for us called the, the Californication of America, where he was yeah. talking about all of those uh, human potential movements, self-help therapies, all this type of thing. Right. Esalen was kind of the, the Vatican of those type of movements. Okay. Uh, Bates, uh, one of Mag Margaret Mead's husbands, uh, used to set up shop there. He was heavily involved in psychological warfare, too. As was Aldous, as was Aldous Huxley, who came over from England, had, had, was involved with MI5, and then came over here and was involved in promoting drugs. If you want, if you want to read a, a, a crucial book, it's Brave New World. That that is the program for. It's much more relevant today than, I think than I 1984. Read it when I was Twelve or we, we of course had that book. Yeah, well, it's it's worth it's worth rereading because it has all of the forms of control that are now in existence. I just did I just did a long piece about uh, the decriminalization of marijuana in Michigan and the devastating effect that's having on the state. I'm totally on board with you with that. Colorado's the same story. It's it's a total mess since they legalized it in 2015. And, and yeah, never talk about the bad sides, but there are no, huge no. I see. What I I was I I remember people smoking marijuana in the '60s, so I went to this uh, 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 pot festival that they had at Rainbow Farm, which is where a guy who tried to grow marijuana before it was illegal eventually got killed by the FBI. But I went there, and first of all, this is completely different. I don't. It didn't smell like the stuff in the '60s. Uh, it was really powerful stuff. I mean, and and everybody's smoking it and. I'm starting to get high <laughs> just by talking to the people that this is so powerful. 
And on time, and now because it's legal up there, every time I, every time I ride my bike down the street, go past a line of cars, I'm smelling dope. Everybody's smoking dope in Indiana. Yep. Hey, I just wanted to um, slow slow it all down for a second and tell you that everybody in the chat is loving you, and uh, a lot of bears have been loving you a long time. And I just well, thank you. Gone quickly. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Well, well, and while I'm on that topic, you know, Owen um, credits you a lot for um, influencing him to see the the power of pornography to uh, enslave the people. And, you know, he's been steadfast about that the whole time. You guys have had your disagreements, but uh, he always gives you credit for influencing him so, so well with that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Good for him. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm now working on the second edition of Libido Dominandi, Sexual Liberation and Political Control. So it's now 20, 25 years after I wrote that book. And I think largely because of the pornography addiction that a lot of young people have, they understand that I don't have to explain to them. They know it. All I have to do is explain where it came from and how it works and even just telling them that sexual liberation is a form of control has oftentimes gotten people to kick the habit. So it's, it's time to, it's time that we talked about this. Uh, what would you, how would you sum up the, what you're going to add to it 25 years later? What, what has changed in culture and what has changed in your view of it in the meantime? Nothing has changed in my view. The only thing that I, yeah. I was vindicated. So I've, I have given a speech, I have given a speech all over the world about how in 2002, I think it was, the Israelis pulled into Ramallah uh, and in, uh, on the West Bank and took over the TV stations and started broadcasting pornography. Okay, now, if you believe that the Israelis want to bring liberation to the Palestinians, I can sell you a bridge in Brooklyn. This is proof that it's a form of control. But the important thing is that happened one year after my book came out. So I never included that. That's the classic example of what I'm talking about. And it proved I was right a year after the book came out. And that's now in the second edition, along with basically the first edition ends with Bill Clinton. Well, there's a lot of water over the dam since Bill Clinton in terms of, in terms of first of all, the rise of uh, the Internet as the main vehicle for pornography transmission, that is a whole quantum leap forward. Uh, uh, because tech, pornography is always driven by technology. And, and so I, I mentioned in the book that the Marquis de Sade, who was one of the first people to understand how sex could be used as a form of control, I said he had a, a technological problem back then. There was pornography there, but it was crude kind of uh, woodcut type of pornography. Uh, and he said that you, we, what they, in order to create the revolutionary spirit, he said, we're going to exhibit women naked in the theaters. Well, there's a problem there, technological problem. If it's a big theater, you can hardly see the woman. You can get a lot of men in, but you can't see the woman. If it's a small theater, you can't get many people involved. Well, this was all solved by technology. Now you've got pornography right on your cell phone, wherever you are. It's a plague. And someone's got to deal with it. Someone's going to have to deal with this. Well, and, and shaming is a big part of it. Yes, I understand that. And, I, and, and we're all going to have to deal with it as it exists now. Uh, my, uh, one of the big things that happened in this regard was when Elon Musk took over Twitter. And for 
Uh, first of all, he he got rid of that guy, jo Yoel Roth, the Jew who was basically using this. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, banning people left and right, uh, not doing anything about child pornography, and ensuring the pornography was all over the place. When Elon Musk took it over, I got put back on Twitter. That was good. And then pornography disappeared. I mean, it disappeared from things where you're not supposed to be, you're not looking for it. You're looking for information on, let's say, Germany, and suddenly it's, flo it's flooded with pornography. That stopped, and now it's back again. Elon Musk, if you're listening, please remove this crap from uh, these, these channels. This is not helping your operation. I, my opinion is he's not doing anything logical. There's, there's no logic to what he's doing. It, it's just a new, a new boss in a, the same system. But that's my my view of it. Yeah. Well, anyway, all I'm saying is that's if you're asking me what's there, I I just went around and it turns out that I was right, and I was right all over the place. So there's a whole passage on pornography in India leading to the rape crisis that's been added. The whole story of Iran, my involvement in Iran, where pornography was being used as psychological warfare against the people. All this stuff has been uh, added to the second edition. Cool. Uh, I wanted to go back to the civil rights thing with the priests, because in my town, uh, there were a bunch of civil rights marches on all of the state capitals in the Midwest and probably a lot of the eastern states. So they would get the priests to march with with the civil rights marchers. And it was always a big photo op to have the priest in the center of the front. Of the right. Front. Were you near Milwaukee? My parents went to Marquette, but we were down by my dad actually um, was one of the doctors at the Milwaukee Catholic. I mean, a Madison Catholic oh. Hospital. Oh, so you were in Madison, the, the People's Republic yeah. of Madison. And Madison was already getting super liberal by the time we left. We came to New Mexico in 1970. So my dad could work where doctors were more uh, needed. He was like Madison, a Madison was Madison was Madison was revolutionary from the beginning. The 18 the 48ers came over there and settled in Wisconsin. One of them, one of these Jewish revolutionaries, uh, was also the girlfriend of uh, Frederick Douglass. Her name was Ottilie Assing. She came from Berlin. She, when she went to Wisconsin, she said, "I never spoke a word of English the entire year I was in Wisconsin. I spoke nothing but German to uh, other revolutionaries." So that was part of what she was doing there. Madison has always been that way. But I, if you're talking about priests in the civil rights movement, this was Father Groppy. Do you remember Father Groppy? Of course, of course. I can picture him, yeah. Well, he was famous in uh, Milwaukee uh, for leading all of these civil rights movements. Look, Father Hesper got involved in the same thing. When you are leading a civil rights march, in a place like Chicago or Wisconsin, Milwaukee, you're attacking Catholic ethnic neighborhoods. This is exactly what Hesburgh did in, in uh, Chicago. The icon for Notre Dame University is Hesburgh and Martin Luther King with their arms crossed like this, singing, We Shall Overcome. Now, this is when Martin Luther King went to Chicago in 1966. And he was met by a bunch. He shows up at Marquette Park and the people on the other side of the street all started throwing rocks and one hit him in the head right out when he got out of the car. Now, who were those people? Who were those people? What were they? Were they white? Well, that's the way they're portrayed. If you ask them where they came from, they'd all say they were Lithuanians. And if, 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 uh, if a bunch of 
Germans had showed up in their neighborhood and marched to take over their, their buildings, they would have thrown rocks at the Germans too. This is, this is, this is the grammar. The grammar of the North, city of the North, like Chicago, is ethnic neighborhoods. And what they did was basically transport what they, I'm talking about the Rockefeller, I'm talking about Nelson Rockefeller. He paid Martin Luther King $25,000 to go to work with the Quakers and destroy Catholic culture in Chicago, except that they called it segregation. There was no segregation in Chicago, none. No water fountains for white people, no sit on the back of the bus. It was all ethnic neighborhoods, it had nothing to do with segregation. And the black. That's why, that's why I wanted to bring you on here because so much of this stuff is getting smeared by the people who have rewritten the history. Because if they don't hear it from somebody like you, nobody's going to know that's really how it was. No, this is why I wrote the, my book, the, the Slaughter of Cities urban renewal as ethnic cleansing, because no one has told the story of the destruction of Catholic neighborhoods. Uh, Michelle Obama said, oh, y'all wouldn't talk to us and you ran away. No, white flight. No, no, y'all engaged in ethnic cleansing. That's what y'all did. They, and I'm not, I'm not blaming the black people, okay, because they were pawns in a bigger game. Uh, and there was a lot of confrontation, but basically uh, they were used as proxy warriors for the oligarchs to destroy the Catholics. Well, because you're a little older than me, and there's some people in the chat who say that uh, you look young compared to me. So, you know, people give me a hard time. It's fine. Uh, but I was being brainwashed by it. You know, I believed in all of that stuff because I was young and, and gullible. It wasn't until I got into my 20s that I started to see that a lot of what they had been saying didn't make any sense. No, that was that was the tragedy. So you allow people like Carl Rogers to come in and take over the religious orders and they're brainwashed and they, they start blaming, we're, we're bad people, we're white. We're oppressing the black people. Well, we're not white. There were Lithuanians in Marquette Park. They weren't white. You didn't know you were white until a black person showed up on the other side of the street. You were there minding your own Lithuanian business until Martin Luther King showed up. And so the, the Catholics were the classic example of the group that internalized the commands of its oppressors. And they started hating themselves. And, and the religious started getting involved in, uh, first of all, the civil rights movement, then the anti-war movement, like the Burrigan brothers, and they started getting involved in illegal criminal activity, like breaking into draft uh, offices and pouring blood on things like that. And it started to get out of control. Uh, a lot of those people left and they never came back. Marino Order, classic example, they run off to, they're off in El Salvador, they become communist revolutionaries in the jungle and the nuns start having sex with the priests and it's all because of revolution. This is the, what was unleashed in the Catholic Church at this time. Well, and you mentioned the sexual revolution. Um, my mom had a lot of Catholic guilt. Um, my dad never veered away from the, the teaching of the church like my mom did. My mom ended up going on to get a PhD in counseling psychology after us five kids were adults. Um, she first went and got a master's in counseling and then went on to get a PhD in, in counseling psychology. And I watched her go through all of that schooling. And it just, by the time 
time she was going through that, I was already in my 20s. And the, the schooling that she was getting, I just thought psychology was a bunch of crap. It's, it was never a disinterested science. It was always a form of engineering and social control. I don't care who you're talking about. It was Freud. It was that way. He just wanted to social. He wanted to get rich Americans on the couch. Uh, Watson said it explicitly, and the Carl Rogers third wave people did it. Uh, if you got them, took them aside, and they would admit that's what you're doing. So they ne your your mother never studied psychology. Libido dominandi, in addition to being about sexual liberation and political control, is a history of modern psychology of all three schools and how all three of them were engineering, social engineering, and forms of control. Right. Well. And my, my skepticism kept getting ramped up because every two or three years they would throw out what they were saying the years before and it would be this whole new agenda. Every couple, like every two or three years would be a whole new deal. It just, it never, it never stopped being dumb. No, and it never, it never stopped being uh, destructive as well. And the people who got to her, so She's in her uh, mid eighties and she never really found peace because it was just this constant seeking. Well, give her a copy of Libido Dominandi, and uh, she'll she'll recognize what's going on. Maybe she'll understand yeah, what she's, happened. She's an author also, and uh, she wrote books on psychology. And you know, she didn't really get published or anything, but she's she wrote some books, and, and she'd like to see it. Yeah, I'd be happy. I'd be. Ha I, I, I'm going to rush and get the second edition out. Uh, but you know, I think she, I think she'd understand what happened in a much better way because no one else has ever has written the real history of what happened here. Right. Well, how, how many books have you written? I know that sounds like a novice interview question, but I'm curious. Good question. How many books have I written? Uh, I think it's uh, depends on what you mean by a book. There was a time when I had eBooks out there and I had, yeah, it's like Bill Clinton. What do you mean by sex? No, because Amazon got involved with things, something called ebooks, and suddenly I had 40, 40 ebooks. So all those books there, they're flashing before my eyes like my life going before me. So what is it, about 16 to 20 books, something like that? You were talking with Roosh V a couple of years ago about you were rewriting the one about the Jews taking everything over, and it was 650 pages. I came up with a second edition of the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. Uh, it turned out, yes. yeah, okay. So the first, uh, the sec, the third, the second edition is in three volumes, and uh, altogether it's eighteen hundred pages long. Eighteen hundred. Oh, I, I missed it by a, by a few. <laughs> Twenty-seven books and thirty-two eBooks. Twenty-seven books and thirty-two eBooks. So there you have the definitive answer. Um, cool. It seemed like a real dumb question when I asked it, but now I'm glad I asked it. Yeah, I'm glad you asked too, because I didn't know, to be honest with you. I, I lost track a while back. Now, old people leading up to this, everybody was real excited about you coming on. And I said I would read questions, so let's see what we've got. Okay. okay. Moon Jazz Bear says, how does EMG, EMJ feel about Paul or Saul's earlier work? Paul? Paul the Apostle? Paul the Apostle, yes. We've got a earlier work. Someone's been telling a joke about really liking Paul's earlier work. What, what does he mean by that? I'm not sure what he means by that. It, it's a 
it's a riff on uh, the German uh, Führer's uh, earlier work. It's just a it's just a joke. Okay, I I, I didn't get the joke. So yeah, I I, I, re I realized halfway through it, you know, it was a bad idea to read it. I'll try to read good ones. Okay, read read one where I'm in on the joke. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry about that. Uh, okay, this this one's uh, leading right from that. Uh, does EMJ know any good jokes? Do you know why uh, Presbyterians are against fornication? I don't. Because it leads to dancing. <laughs> I think I've heard that one before. That's right up your alley. Yeah. Do you know how to Do you know how to catch a unique rabbit? No. Unique up on it. <laughs> All right. All right, listen, if you're interested in jokes, I refer you to Owen Benjamin, okay? He's he's much better he at it. He was in here a while ago. He hardly ever comes to these, but he came to this one cuz he loves you. So he he's he's much better at the at the joke thing and the stand up than I am. Well, yeah, I've seen you. I've seen you be funny though. That's cool. Okay, we have some more questions. This must have opened the barn door for questions. Jacobat says, "What do you think about C.G. Jung? Uh, you touched on it earlier." Yeah. So uh, Freud cre created psych psychiatry as the Jewish science. It was all Jews. And they needed someone to transmit it into the Gentile world. And Jung was the man to do that. He was a, a Swiss uh, doctor whose family was heavily involved in the occult. Uh, and uh, he became Freud's disciple. And then there was a battle. And then people, there's a big uh, uh, issue in the history of psychiatry. Like, why did Jung break with Freud? I have my own specific interpretation. It was a battle over who was going to get the rich Americans because they were coming over in droves uh, because of their guilty conscience. Rich Americans were generally Protestants who couldn't go to confession, and so they had this burden of guilt they were carrying around. And Freud created psychoanalysis as a secularized Jewish version of confession, going to confession. He got the idea from Adam Weishaupt, uh, uh, the founder of the Illuminati, and Weishaupt called it Seelenanalyse, and Freud just Greekified the word and made it into psycho, psychoanalyse. Sorry to interrupt. Why couldn't they go to confession? Because it doesn't exist. The sacrament doesn't exist in Protestant churches. Okay, thank you. Well, Classic example, from an American point of view, the classic example of the effect of that is Hawthorne's novel, The Scarlet Letter. This is a, a Puritan minister who has to be a saint. You had to be a saint to be admitted to the church. And what happens when a saint commits adultery? That's, that's what we're talking about here. This, this, this huge uh, this psychic pressure that had built up because of the inability to go to confession. And suddenly psychoanalysis was basically allowing you to have your cake and eat it too. So basically the classic example of Sigmund Freud, Jung did the same thing, but Sigmund Freud, uh, Horace Frank is a man, doctor from America, who wants to be a psychoanalyst, so he's got to go over there, he's got to lie down on the couch, and during his psychoanalysis, he tells Freud that he's having an affair with one of his patients, who is a rich woman, because that's the only type of person that did psychoanalysis, he had to be rich. 
And so Freud, instead of saying, shame on you, that you're violating professional ethics, he didn't say that at all. He said, basically, what I want you to do is divorce your wife, marry the patient, and then give me a big contribution from her money. That explains the whole thing in a nutshell. It's a form of control. It's a way of Jews controlling you by giving you a permission to go on sinning as long as you pay money to him to relieve your guilt. That ran concurrently with those whack, those those hack doctors that were giving women orgasms with electric vibrators as as a form of therapy. That's a little bit later. Are you talking about Masters, Masters and Johnson? No, there were. It was probably around the turn of the century when you know when electric motors first. It didn't take very long to come up with a vibrator, and there were. I probably shouldn't have gone this into this, but I, yeah. Okay, so Jung, Jung was the Goy successor to Freud. They broke, and then they fought over rich patients. Jung won out because he got Edith Rockefeller and McCormick to give him enough money to build a building and so on and so forth. So that's yeah, so. But he was always he was, but he was also involved in the occult. And what you have with this Jungian archetypal stuff is a lot of channeling of occult things that he got from his mother and right. their their family. We have a question from. Brendan Hughes, my buddy Brendan, does EMJ think the story of Nephites is legitimate? I don't know if he spelled that correctly, but he said he wrote Nephites, N-E-P-H-I-T-E-S. I have no idea what that story is. Okay. Well, that was an honest answer. We've got a bunch of questions here. This is great. Um, Sleep Deprived Bear said, what does EMJ think of Dignitatis humanae. Humanae. I don't, does that sound? It, yes. It, this, this was the battle over church uh, versus state at Vatican II. Uh, the CIA was involved in this, uh, wanted the Vatican to approve uh, the separation of church and state, wanted the church to have officially approve that. John Courtney Murray was the agent of the Vatican. He was working with Harry Luce and C.D. Jackson to subvert the church's teaching, and he failed. The church did not endorse the separation of church and state. And when was that? 60, well, Second Vatican Council. I don't know exact. I think Dignitatis Humanae was passed at the same time the last year, uh, which would be 65. Gotcha. Okay. When my dad was still alive, uh, I was asking him about uh, his memories of, of growing up Catholic. And I'm sad that I hadn't asked him when he was mo of more sound mind. Um, what was it like? Uh, what were your parents like when you were growing up? My father was a second generation. Uh, his father came from Cork, from Mallow, suburb of Cork, came over uh, worked in the Baldwin locomotive factory as a young man and then create a, got a hardware store and became very, uh, you know, well off. He had a, a car, he had a, a summer house, built a summer house in Wildwood, New Jersey, and then lost his money in the depression. But in the meantime, he had uh, six children. My father was one of them. Uh, he decided because of his father's experience with the depression that he was not going to go into business. He went into government at the time of a huge expansion of the federal government. And so he ended up working for, for the Navy Yard. Uh, my mother was German. And so I am biracial. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm half Irish English on the one side and my mom was almost pure German. So I can't, we have a pretty similar. 
Similar. Yeah, that's a ver it's a, I think uh, Ang uh, Irish German is the most common uh, combined ethnic group in the country. We have great people like Joe McCarthy. He was Irish German. I'm, I'm drawing a blank here. I'm sure there were others. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Plane Runner wants to know, have you read Book of Enoch? No. Oh, and that, that was a dual question. Two different people asked that. Was J oh, uh, DJ Wabi Sabi Tabby asked, was GF JFK a real Catholic or was it a grappled story? John F. Kennedy was a uh, Catholic who, uh, whose father was very powerful in the Democratic Party. Um, I think he was the last, maybe you might argue Nixon, but the last president who felt that he had a mandate from the people to do something for the people. He wasn't a stooge of the oligarchs uh, in the way that uh, Lyndon Johnson was, and I think Lyndon Johnson was involved in his murder. Uh, he also had a weakness when it came to women, uh, and maybe that contributed to his downfall. Uh, uh, the, the other man I see in this regard, even stronger, an even stronger personality is Robert Kennedy, who took on a lot of, took on the Jews, uh, both in, uh, in pornography and in other ways. He took on J. Edgar Hoover, uh, apparently walked a dog into J. Edgar Hoover's office and said, I hate faggots, uh, kind of putting, <laughs> putting, putting J. Edgar Hoover on notice that he understood the game that he was playing, that he was a homosexual who was involved in blackmailing people. And both of those men were killed. Both of those men were murdered because I think that uh, the people didn't like them, and I'm talking about the Israelis, I think, who were the main group behind the murder of John F. Kennedy, knew that they couldn't be uh, seduced or intimidated in the way that, let's say, uh, somebody like Lyndon Johnson was, and so they, they murdered him. I remember one of my good friends, uh, when I was a teenager, one of my good friend's grandfathers was adamant that, that Lyndon Johnson was involved in killing Kennedy. No, it's obvious. I, I, don't, it, I don't know. It's obvious. It's obvious that he had the motive. He was there. He didn't like Kennedy. I think Kennedy was going to remove him from the ticket for the, when the next election came around. But the proof, the, the proof is what he was afterward. And it became so obvious that he was a stooge of the Israel lobby. He was in bed with that whore uh, who was given the, uh, the Medal of Freedom by Bill Clinton. What was her name now? The blonde um, it escapes me. Anyway, he was in bed with her when uh, the Liberty, when the Israelis tried to sink the Liberty. Johnson was the one who told the American planes to turn back. He was a total stooge of the of the Jews. Right. Well, what what occurs to me now is in the in the mid seventies, where would people get their conspiracy theories? Because obviously, my friend's grandfather was just exposed to regular newspapers and stuff. I, it's, it's fascinating how people would um, get these ideas or where they got their ideas from when, when the media was already in on, on all the... Sure, the media, the, when, oh, when the, the example that I give of the control of the media is after Kennedy was assassinated, we went, I was in high school at that point, went home and there was Walter Cronkite on the TV and he said it was a lone deranged gunman because that's what Alan Dulles told him, who, who's the CIA was also involved in Kennedy's assassination. So that's what Dulles told him. He said it and everybody believed it. What else, what, what else are you going to say? 
What, what else, what other source of information do you have at that point? Now, there were other people, like Eustace Mullins was a very uh, aware guy at that point. Uh, but for the most part, uh, it was dominated by very few sources. And we're seeing that collapse under, as we watch. And the classic example, of which I can't stress how important this is, is that Seymour Hirsch is now publishing the story of the pipeline on Substack. And the New York Times, where he used to be published, is now coming up with this preposterous propaganda piece saying it was a bunch of Ukrainians on a, a yacht that blew up the pipeline. This shows you how much things have changed in, in my lifetime. Right. We have a question from Bowler Bear. It's a very broad question, so take it as little or as much as you want. Uh, thoughts on the Pope and modern-day Catholic Church? I have thought a lot about this. Uh, I've written a lot about um, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, previous Pope, Pope Benedict XVI. You cannot understand this Pope unless you understand the fact that Ratzinger put this man in office by resigning. It was, it was an incredibly traumatic event for the Catholic Church. The uh, uh, Zewald, Peter Zewald, who wrote the biography of uh, Ratzinger, talked about it. He said they were, the people in the Vatican were just, it's, it's as if a bomb had gone off and they were walking around like sheep without a shepherd. This is interesting because the prayer that Ratzinger said when he became Pope is, pray that I do not flee when the wolves arrive. Well, he fled. And the Spiegel, which is a German magazine, which is a, a, a wretched uh, socialist rag uh, in general. But I think they got it right here. They accused uh, Ratzinger of Fahnenflucht. Fahnenflucht, which means desertion under fire. I think that's what happened. And that desertion opened the gates for the people who had been waiting in the wings, the liberal crowd, the liberals who had been suppressed by John Paul II and by Ratzinger for about, I'd say, 30-some years. And because of what Ratzinger did, he discredited that attempt to maintain orthodoxy in light of this modern onslaught, and he opened the door to this whole new Zangalan mafia, uh, and in sp specifically the Jesuits. The Jesuits in New York City, the the editorial board of America Magazine now run the church. And the man in particular is James Martin, SJ, whose sole goal in life is to promote homosexuality. This has been a disaster for the church. Uh, but uh, so, so I was in, in Iran. Actually, I'm in Qom, the holy city of Qom. Uh, and uh, the mullahs, are talking and they're asking me, do you think the Pope will ever come to Iran? And at this time, Benedict was Pope. And I said, no, but he won't be Pope forever, I said. And when we got to Tehran, he had resigned and everybody, the mullahs were saying, Jones is a prophet. This Pope, I'm going to say it again. I'm going to say it again. This Pope, he will, Francis will not be Pope forever. And when that happens, there will be a changing of the guard and probably a reaction. Well, that wasn't the first time you were called a prophet. I am a prophet because I have no honor in my native place. That's the qualification for being a prophet. I like that definition. 
Now, I, I like how you say whatever, you're a historian, but you say whatever needs to be said and you just live with the consequences and there have been many. Yes, but I'm still alive. I'm still alive and kicking. I was, uh, you've heard about that FBI uh, SPLC list against conservative Catholics. I was on that list. I'm the reason it was yeah. created. It was created by the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, to attack me because they knew I was coming out with the Jewish revolutionary spirit. And I'm still around. I'm still publishing books. And the SPLC is now uh, fallen out of favor. Everybody knows it's a joke. Uh, it was a wing of the ADL, wasn't it? Or started by, started by? No, no, it was it was different than the ADL. It was basically okay. a. It was a. There is a connection because it's a Jewish operation. Morris Dees was a Jew. He capitalized on that whole aura of the civil rights movement with that phony ass title of his, and uh, but it was basically a Jewish operation to to, to demonize anybody the Jews didn't like as being white supremacists. We have another question from Goth Guido. Can EMJ talk about the experience that led him to write Ethnos Lead Needs Logos? Logos. Yeah, I was in uh, Guadalajara uh, speaking at a conference uh, that was basically, uh, I guess you could call it Mexican Nazis, except that Mexican Nazis are really Cristeros. So every, every time, they, they, it was to honor a guy who had written a book praising Hitler a Mexican had written a book praising Hitler, and uh, 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 but every time they end the meeting ends, they all sell, they all shout "Viva Cristo Rey!" So they were Cristeros. It was Catholics, uh, but and the guy who was there was um, David Duke. He was there, so we got we had you know long conversations, you know, hanging out in Guadalajara for about a week, and I eventually told David Duke, "I think you should become a Catholic." And to be honest with you, I think he did become a Catholic, although he's not proclaiming this anymore. But but the the issue the issue that I talked about at that point was this ethnic identity in its most basic form, which is like uh, you go into the into Paraguay as a Jesuit in the 16th century, and you start to talk to a group of people, the Guarani, who have never met anybody other than uh, another Guarani. They have, maybe other tribes speak different languages. And how do you, how do you, re, how do you preserve your identity, your ethnic identity in the face of meeting other people? And the answer was the Jesuits came in and basically wrote the Guarani grammar, grammar and they wrote the Guarani dictionary and as a result, they preserve these people through Logos. That's what Logos is. It's your language. To this day, to this day, one of the official languages of Paraguay is Guarani because of what the Jesuits did. And I'm saying if you, it's, it's a paradox, but if you want to stay the same, you've got to change. And you have to make contact with the general Logos. So I've, I've said before, you were once that big. That was you. You were all there, and you were that big. In order to remain you, you had to change. You had to get bigger. You had to grow to become the person that you are today. I'm saying every living thing is involved in this thing, and ethnic groups are living things, and that's the type of thing. You have to, in order to retain your identity, you have to grow and make contact with Logos. So ethnos needs Logos. We have another. That's great. 
We have, thank you. Uh, we have another Lee Stacks, my friend Lee Stacks asks, can EMJ break down the power structure between the Jesuit Black Pope Order and the White Pope Order? Yeah, yeah, it's the same thing right now. Unfortunately, it's the same thing. The Jesuits have taken over the Catholic Church. The Jesuit, the America Magazine now runs the Catholic Church, and the fruit is basically the synodality, the Zenodal Weg in Germany. Just today, this bishop announced they're going to bless homosexual unions. They're going to bless gay marriage. This is a catastrophe for the Catholic Church. You cannot bless sodomy. And I'm saying this is what the, the result of the Jesuit takeover of, of the Vatican that has happened uh, to this day. Uh, I've heard you talk about this on, on interviews, but can you just give a brief rundown of how long they've been doing this takeover? It's over 100 years, isn't it? No, no, no. So, so the, what I just mentioned, I mentioned... Okay. The a Jesuit, the Jesuits were the ones that went into the jungles of Paraguay and taught these, created their language for them, created the dictionary, created the grammar. They were heroic figures all over the world, heroic figures. Did the same thing in Quebec, living with the Mi'kmaq and, and the, those people. We're talking about something that happened very recently, and the, the crucial place was America. The Jesuits converted, the American Jesuits converted to Americanism at the time when the American Empire ended up ruling the entire world. That's how they got that's, this type that's of... The, that's the phase I'm talking about. Yes, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about that period of time. So it, let's say in the 1950s, if you're a Jesuit, uh, the United States government comes to you and says, we're going to fight communism. Well, who, we're, yeah, great. We're going to fight communism. Good, I agree with you. And then you get sucked into a program that suddenly is changing and say, wait a minute, we're not going to fight communism anymore. We're going to fight homophobia. Well, wait a minute, did I sign on for that? I don't remember. Now, that's a long period of time. But if you want a crucial figure in this regard, uh, check out Robert Bear, the late Robert Blair Kaiser, who was a Jesuit novice who left and then he became... Time Magazine's Vatican correspondent was a crucial figure at Vatican II, basically working for the Time Magazine, the propaganda ministry, co-opting what was happening in at the Vatican, involved in all sorts of intrigue. You want to read the real story of him, Malachi Martin, working for the Jews, running off with his wife. It's in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. That will give you some indication of what happened to the Jesuits over this crucial period of time, which I'm saying began after World War II, when they got involved as the chaplains of the American empire. Right. I, okay. I, yeah. Makes me want to read all your books. I don't know if I have Thank you. Seven. I'm... Everyone should. Everyone out there, buy every single one of these books. <laughs> you'll, you'll get the you'll get the education you never got in college. And uh, this is a good time to mention your website is culturewars.com, or are you just culturewars.com. All of the books are available there. Right. Yes. Cool. Don't do not go to Amazon. The Jews have banned me from Amazon. Go to oh, you can only get them at culturewars.com. I have a very broad question from Backsky 2.0. He's a he's actually a customer of mine. I have one question. How did the word of God get so divided into all these different religions? Well, the first uh, step was the Reformation. 
in Germany with Martin Luther. That divided Europe. And then the Protestant uh, part of Europe became the uh, basically the uh, operating system of the British Empire. And the British Empire conquered the world. Uh, but what happened here is uh, that there was an instability to Protestantism because they had no authority. So the crisis, if you want to know where the crisis really came out, it was in Elizabethan England. Where uh, And read Shakespeare. Shakespeare understood exactly what happened. Read uh, Ulysses' speech in Troilus and Cressida. Take but degree away, untune that string, and hark what discord follows. He's saying when you break with legitimacy, the legitimacy of Christian kings getting their anointing from the Catholic Church, there's going to be no stop. You can't stop that from splitting and splitting and splitting, and you're going to end up with 30,000 different Protestant sects, none of which have any authority. That's, that's, where, that's how it happened. Very concise. I loved it. We have questions stacking up. Does EMJ have any input on the NT being based in France as opposed to Israel? New Testament? I would assume so, yes. I, I have no idea what that means. Based in France? Okay. I, I have no idea. Unless, unless I'm, uh, maybe I don't know what NT means. No, I, I, I'm almost positive it, that means New Testament. There's been all this um, chatter about that lately. Uh, we, don't, we don't have to. Plane Runner wants to know, do you believe the Earth geocentric and stationary? Yeah, I think you can make a very plausible case for that. Uh, my friend uh, Bob Sungenis did a, a, a book on this, Galileo Was Wrong. He gave a, 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 held a conference here in South Bend. Uh, it's basically, after Einstein, it's, the question is of what moves around what is purely a, a question of where the observer is standing. So if you stand on the moon, the Earth goes around the moon. Uh, Einstein's relativity basically eliminated the idea that there was some type of it's the universe this heliocentric universe predicated on the fact that there is an observer a static observer who is God and you're looking at it from God's point of view from a human point of view it makes no difference whether the earth from let's say from a navigational point of view it makes no difference whether the earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the earth now that made an impression there were a lot of reporters there from mainstream media outlets and I think it made an impression on those people and they considered it a threat. And I think what happened as a result of that was you ended up with flat earth theory, which is absurd. Uh, and But to distract attention from geocentrism, which I think is very plausible. Interesting. We have a question about Hegel. Mark Hamilton says, Hegel's cunning of reason, please explain. Is that... Okay, so Hegel was uh, influenced by Vico. All of the Germans at this time were influenced by Vico, the, the Neapolitan philosopher, who basically discovered that, that there was a meaning to history, or rediscovered. Augustine was one of the first men who understood time and history, and Vico was acting out of that. And so you have these historical sciences growing up in Germany, and Hegel suddenly uh, thinking that there is a philosophy of history instead of just one damn thing after another. Hegel was a, a 
Lutheran theology student. He went to the seminary to be a Lutheran minister, didn't become a minister. And he was 19 years old when the French Revolution took place. And you put these two things together and you have a man who's trying to come up, has this Christian patrimony, he's going to apply it to the world as he understands it. And so there is a, a meaning to history. And one of the central concepts of this meaning to history is the cunning of reason, or as Hegel said, die List der Vernunft. And it, it, it goes back to Joseph, the, the story of Joseph in the Bible. When he's sold into slavery, he becomes high official at the granary. He saves Israel. And he, the brothers are standing there and he says, the evil that you intended to do to me has been turned by God's power into good. So this is how God takes control of history, or Hegel would use the word vernunft, which is his translation of logos, as a synonym for God. And that is precedent because exactly what St. John did at the beginning of his gospel when he said logos is God. So this is, a, 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 I think, an incredible step forward uh, in terms of consciousness. It got ruined because uh, Hegel had sex with his chambermaid. But that's another story. You can read that in Logos Rising, that whole story there. I don't want to take away from the fact that the cunning of reason is a powerful concept. It is a, a way a man who was making sense of biblical truth in light of the uh, understanding of history at, at that time in Europe. You have my full approval to drop one of your book titles in every answer. Thank you. I will. I'm doing my best. I, I noticed that. I love it. I, I'm all about selling the soap. That's uh, Dennis Miller always used to talk about. Okay, Zoid Jinx says, what is EMJ's opinion of Cordrenu Cornelio? Cordrenu Cornelio. I have no idea what that is. Okay. I, yeah. Poor Bear, my buddy Poor Bear says, EMJ, you've talked before about the papal bulls, Sikut Judeis, regarding relations with Jews when it came to them educating the youth and non-aggression. How would you like to see relations going forward? I think it's called Sikut. Uh, the, the bull was known as Sikut Judeus Non. It came into being basically at the time of the fall of the Roman Empire when the church had to assume government power to, to keep Europe from falling apart. And one of the main problems they dealt with was the Jews. How do you deal with the Jews? Jews are not citizens. They are aliens wherever they are. Uh, how should we deal? They're a problem wherever they are. They're always involved in antisocial activity, whether it's usury or whatever it is, slavery at that time. Uh, uh, prostitution, they're always involved in these bad things. How do you deal with the Jews? And they worked out this idea, which is basically secret Judeus and all. So it's two parts. So just as no one is allowed to harm the Jew, part one. Part two is the Jew has no right to subvert your culture. So you put those two things together, and I think you had a modus vivendi that was successful for about 1,500 years. I mean, nothing's perfect. But uh, it was a modus vivendi that allowed the Jews to flourish. They certainly flourished during this period of time. It allowed the church to uh, evangelize the Jews. Uh, that happened as well. Uh, I think we should go back to that and get rid of the current fictions, which are the Jews are our elder brothers. 
we share the same morality. Ratzinger said that in a posthumous book at the very moment. I mean, he's in his grave at this point, but the book comes out at the very moment that 400 Jewish organizations say that abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. This is the end of dialogue. <laughs> these, these, these people do not worship Yahweh. Let's eliminate that fiction. If abortion is one of your fundamental values, you worship Moloch. And there's a tradition of all the way back to Moses and the golden calf where the Jews were constantly falling into this type of worship. Well, that's what they're doing today. Right. Titty Bear told a joke in the form of a question that I'm not going to read. I'm going to stay off that topic. We've had some controversy in the bear community. That probably doesn't surprise you. No, I'm not surprised. <laughs> uh, Dias Ferreira said, it is a pleasure to read EMJ's writing. Does he have some writing style manuals to manual to suggest? I'm, I'm assuming he means as a writer. Yeah. As a writer yeah. No, no, I have, uh, no, I have, Deborah, I'm too busy writing my own books to, uh, to come up with a style manual. Uh, Beverly, Lady B71 says, who does EMJ appreciate? Any role models for you? Well, you know, it, at various points in my life, uh, various people have spoken to me in, in various ways, <laughs> good and bad. I mean, uh, James Joyce, The Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man was a very influential book in my life. Rainer Ramuria Rilke's uh, book, Die Aufzeichnungen des Malta Lawrence Brigge, was another influential book. When I got back. I got to stop you for a sec. Can you say that again slower? Because people are going to watch this on the replay and they'll write it down. That last one was a little. Okay. Uh, let me just. There's an English translation called The Notebooks of Malta Lawrence Brigge. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not recommending these books. I'm just saying they were influential at a certain time in my life. When I, when, I, when I got to Germany, I've already told this story, but when I got to Germany, someone handed me the Seven Story Mountain by Thomas Merton. That brought me back to Catholicism. That was a very influential book in my life. And at that point, I'm, I'm, I'm in graduate school and I'm faced with the idea, is this something that is, has intellectual consequences? Or is it something I just keep private and do on Sunday and then just go along with every dance craze in literary criticism uh, like Marxism or, something, or Freudianism? Uh, the people that helped me at that point were Etienne Gilson, uh, whose book on the medieval uh, Christian, uh, medieval philosophy, and Jacques Maritain, specifically Jacques Maritain's book, The F uh, Three Reformers, uh, the, which helped me write my dissertation, which is called The Angel and the Machine, which is about Nathaniel Hawthorne. So, I mean, I'm, I'm just telling you that, that at certain periods in my life, these are the, the, the books uh, that, that helped me to, on my road to where I am. I've, all, I've said before, I can't write, I couldn't write The Dangers of Beauty unless I had written Logos Rising. I couldn't have written Logos Rising unless I had written The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit. I couldn't have written The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit unless I had written Le, uh, Libido Dominante. It goes back, it's like a pyramid where you put the next block on top of the block that you already have. Interesting. Did you have to, um, at some point, just self-publish? Were you... Were you did, did you have a road that went from very traditional publish, publishing companies and then just kept getting knocked out? 
Yeah. Yeah, I started off. Uh, well, first of all, I was writing a magazine, so I had to I had to self self self. I had to create the magazine to so that I could give voice to what I had to say because magazines at that point were dominated by Catholic liberals. So American Magazine, Commonweal, that type of thing. So at the beginning, uh, I, my books were all published by someone else until I realized I'm not making any money uh, off of these books. Uh, and once Amazon came along, you didn't need a publisher. So I published my own books at a certain point. So we're, when we're to, uh, the Kroll biography, John Cardinal Kroll and the Cultural Revolution, I decided I'm going to do this on my own. And I've done it pretty much. I did other books uh, with other publishers. And at a certain point, I thought, this is pointless. I'm just going to publish my own books. I know a lot of people, um, if they're wanting to be writers, would be interested in your actual writing discipline, like as a daily, what are, you, what are your, how do your days look? I get up, I lift weights, I go to mass, I have breakfast, I sit down and do research or write have lunch, do research and write. And then pretty much by the evening, I don't do anything. I play music or something like that. So I don't do really much work after six o'clock in the evening because I'm tired at that point. Uh, do you um, feel like a lot of us do that uh, playing a musical instrument is a wonderful thing? It is, it is. I got, well, I've been, I've been, I got, I was in a band, in a rock band in Germany in the seventies. And that music just kind of wore off. And then for about 20 years, all I did was listen to classical music. And then the Irish ethnic music arrived in South Bend and I started playing Irish music. And I played that for, for uh, about 16 years, every Monday night at a pub here in town. So it's been off and on. I've seen you doing that on video. It's awesome. So, yeah, I, I'm known as Telecaster Bear. So I've been a guitar player for 50 years. And the Telecaster is the most iconic. Uh, yeah, it is. It's a, so what? What do what do you play? Do you play some variation of the blues? Do you play rock and roll? What do you yeah, play? Yeah, I've been a blues guy all my life. You know, I had to. You have. You know, you go through different phases, but uh, you you always come back to. Uh, yeah, yeah, I like the blues because when you sing the blues, you always say the same thing twice. I said, when you sing the blues, when you sing the blues, you always say the same thing twice. That's right. Uh, have you heard about this national festival that uh, Owen has been having for two years running? Uh, this will be our second one coming this this uh, Labor Day weekend. Or no, weekend. Where, where in in Idaho? Is that where? Oh, it's in it's in Missouri. Um, he's actually. Missouri. He's actually crowdfunded for um, some really nice land in Missouri. So it's the Missouri campus. Okay. Because I, I went to see him uh, perform at, in uh, Hobart, Indiana. That's where we met uh, for the first time in person. That's right. Uh, yeah, I don't expect you to keep up on Owen. I just I wondered if you knew about that. No, he's a, ver he's a very talented guy. It became obvious to me when I went and saw him. You know, he's got musical ability. He can tell stories. And so he's a very talented guy. Yes. Well, he's inspired thousands and thousands of people to get married and have babies and we've had we've had at least four in the last two weeks in the bear community so great god bless him god bless you all that's the this is the i'm telling people i'm telling that generation the fundamental issue when you're 20 in your 20s is to find um, um get married and have start a family that's the fundamental that's how you enter the serious phase of your life
There's nothing more important. There's nothing more important at that period of your life. I'm guilty of being a baby boomer. I was dragged into it um, kind of against my will in my 20s, but I'm very blessed that it happened. I have two sons. They're in their 30s. And uh, the best thing that ever the best thing that ever happened to me was was getting married. Um, I, I was 21. My wife was 20. We hadn't even finished college yet, but I knew that I had to do this if I wanted a life. And I, I, I had some inkling that at this point it was getting very dangerous out there because the sexual revolution was picking up steam and uh, I didn't want to be dragged into that. And so it saved me and uh, it saved me a lot of heartache. So we went on to have five children and uh, we now have 22 grandchildren. Congratulations. Thank you. I had no idea. That's awesome. Okay, Stuntman Bear asks, if EMJ could talk with one person from the Bible, who would it be excluding God and Jesus? St. John. Mm. You had that answer ready to go. Yeah, it would be St. John. Of course, I'd have to improve my Greek to do this, but you know, yeah, it would be St. John. Kitty Bear wants to know, does EMJ like author Kurt Vonnegut? Yeah, he's a, I think he was a man of integrity. I think Slaughterhouse-Five spoke about something that needed to be said, the firebombing of Dresden. He brought that up when nobody was talking about it. I don't know whether he got co-opted. I had the sense he was sad toward the end of his life. He got co-opted. I don't know for sure, but he was worth reading for that book alone. Right. Uh, Arizona Annie wants to know, did you ever speak with Noam Chomsky? No. Bear with me homesteading. What is EMJ's advice for Catholics on how to navigate the church as institution? I don't, that seems like it has somewhat of an agenda to it. Yeah, that does say. I, my, my, navigate means, in my understanding, is you go to your local parish and you enroll there and you become part of that community. I don't, I don't have any, It's anything else is too complicated. I have people who uh, uh, think that there are other ways you got to do it. There are problems. There will always be problems with the church, but that's that's the basic thing. That's what you should do. I've told this story a million times. It's in the it's in the gospel. Jesus Christ knew about what was going to happen because he was God, and so he, they told the story of Christ in the boat. The boat is the church. The church is always tossed about by storms because the devil has power in this world. And when the, when the storm comes, it always seems that Christ is asleep. That's the story. He's asleep in the boat. And so at this certain point, the, 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 the apostles get so scared that they go and they wake him up and they say, don't you care that we're all going to die? And he stands up and he calms the storm and he says, where is your faith? Now, if you... If they had jumped out of the boat, that was instant death. And if you leave the church, it's instant death. So don't leave the church even when there's a storm happening. Okay. Goth Guido has, has been asking your thoughts on Alexander Dugan. I met, I met Dugin in, uh, in uh, Mashhad in Iran. He gave a speech about the multipolar world. Uh, I asked, brought up, made some comments, questions. He came up to me after that 
and uh, solicited an article. So I sent an article and he published it in his magazine. He is uh, a Russian a Russian nationalist at a moment when the, the Russian church and nation have become one because of the outside story. Uh, he's tragically involved. His daughter was murdered by the Nazis in the Ukraine. Uh, a tragic story that, uh, you know, I just felt horrible about how, how he must have felt at that point. Uh, and that's the extent, that's the extent of our contact. Uh, there's some guy, some lunatic out there who claims I'm a KGB agent because I was in the same room with Alexander Dugin. The fact of the matter is that we didn't have enough time together to really come and exchange views to the point where we could have a meeting of the minds. There is a power, there is a big uh, a difference between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Churches. They are or different in their orientation. Uh, they're both apostolic churches. Uh, it's not like a Protestant church or something like that, but there is a difference in orientation, uh, and there's a kind of xenophobia that the Russians have, and obviously the United States are proving right now that the Russians are, <laughs> are very justified in feeling xenophobic because the people are out to get them, uh, but which makes it difficult to make, uh, to, to make contact. The great, the, uh, just to go on in that direction, the great genius of the late uh, Nader Talib Zada, uh, the man who uh, was the Iranian kind of TV personality, was that he could bring people together from all over the world. So in many ways, I like I have more contacts in, in Iran than I, have, than I have in Russia, even though my, one of my daughter-in-laws is a Russian and the, the older grandchildren speak Russian. It's just I haven't, haven't made that uh, intellectual contact. And now, you know, my, uh, obviously my son made that contact. He married this lady when he went to Vladivostok. But we're in a completely different phase of history, and it just seems very difficult to make contact. So when when I was when I was I was finished I finished the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, I was going to Estonia to conferences there. It's right on the Russian border. There are a lot of Russians there. The man who organized it knew Solzhenitsyn, so I asked him, you know, would you please write the forward to my book, the Jewish Revolutionary Spirit? He had just written Divesti Let Venemesti, the Two Hundred Years Together. And eventually I got word back and said, no, I'm not going to write your book because I'm against the invasion of Iraq. Oh, wait a minute. I was against it too. Why are you punishing me? Why are you punishing me because the neocons took over uh, our, our foreign policy? But anyway, it, it didn't happen. So that... that you, got, you got painted with a broad brush at that point. Yeah, I, I felt... I, I said, you know, well, wait a minute. My, my son was, was at Harvard when your son was at Harvard. We should be you know, buddies, but it, didn't, it just didn't happen because I think at that point, the whole thing was going south. The whole idea that Americans and Russians could get together to talk had just disintegrated and the Russians withdrew and now they're in this state of uh, war, you know, war against us and, and we are the aggressors there. They are every bit, they have every right to defend themselves. NATO is the aggressor in this war, but the tragedy is we just, you know, the, the possibility of talking has disappeared right uh Sake bear has a question i'd like to know your thoughts on faith versus works a protestant friend of mine says that you are guaranteed a spot in heaven as long as you just quote believe in gospel believe in the gospel yes 
that's that's a great idea, and we are saved by faith, but uh, we have to respond by our works. And so the classic problem, Protestant problem, is uh, so you're saved. That's great. Now, what do you do when you uh, commit adultery after you've been saved? This, as I said, the classic example in literature is the Scarlet Letter. This was a minister who believed in sola fide uh, because he got it from Luther, uh, who created the concept. Uh, and now he's, his conscience is burdened by a sin that he shouldn't have committed because he's one of the visible elect on earth. So what do you do? Well, you go in one direction. You can go in the direction of antinomianism and say it's not a sin. Or you can go in the other direction. And uh, you'll just be destroyed uh, by the guilt. Uh, that's the dilemma, and that's why uh, sola fide, as in the classic interpretation, is not adequate, uh, an adequate explanation of how you get to heaven. Got it. Hewitt Shore King, 333. Who do you believe is the best non-Jew filmmaker or influence? influencer of art that that may be too broad filmmaker alfred 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 hitchcock alfred hitchcock who do you believe is the best non-jew filmmaker or influencer of art john ford alfred hitchcock yeah, Alfred Hitchcock was a lech, though. I'm talking about his films, not his personal life. Yeah, I should, I should stay out of it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank after that. Yeah, it was, it was a weird question, but he, you know, he's a good guy. Uh, Teddy Bear again says, "Does EMJ have any Jewish friends receptive to your truths?" Yes. 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 I, I, I know Jews. I know Jews that uh, have converted to Catholicism at my urging. I know Jews who support me, uh, even though they have not converted. Uh, there are Yehuda Littman, an Orthodox Jew from Brooklyn, says he's a better Jew because he reads Culture Wars magazine. So, yes, I have a lot of Jews understand what I'm saying. <laughs> they understand it better than I do because they're involved in it. So I just got I just got a just got a, uh, a letter. A uh, guy wrote to me. He said, you know, I was the classic Jewish loser living in my mother's basement. And, and then I listened to you. And now I'm married uh, and I have children and I'm a member of the Catholic Church. So this happens, this is the type of story you will never hear from the ADL because the ADL is afraid of exactly that. Afraid of exactly that. Because it's a powerful message. It's a powerful message. And these Jews know that I have their good at, in, that I'm thinking of their good. Exactly. This, this is what I'm, 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 not, I'm not trying to harm you. I'm trying to help you. And, and I, I, I'll, I'll take this a step further, okay? There was an interview between Bishop uh, Barron and uh, Ben Shapiro. And basically, Ben Shapiro said, am I going to hell? 
And at that point, he did this dance that lasted about five minutes, and he never said anything. You can watch it. You can Google it. It's on YouTube. You can, if you can figure out what he's saying, you know, luck, good, good for you. The one word that Bishop Barron never mentioned was baptism. Who was it that talked five minutes? The bishop? Yeah, the bishop, and said okay. nothing. You know, you can watch it. You can figure it out. He's one. So, so this is what. The, so, if you, if you, uh, I, you know, I love the Jews. Why do I love the Jews? Because they're my enemy. And Jesus Christ said, you have to love your enemy. So right. what? So how do you deal with an enemy that you love? Uh, well, this is what Saint Peter. You know. So I'll tell you what he should have said. He said should have said, Ben, are you baptized? And at that point, Ben would have said no. And then the bishop should have said, well, baptism is necessary for salvation. If you refuse to be baptized, you cannot be saved. Now, there are people, you know, if you live in the, rain, in the Amazon rainforest in the year 5000 BC, you can't know who Jesus Christ is. And God will judge you according to how well you follow the moral law. But if you're a Jew living in the 21st century, you know who Jesus Christ is. Ben Shapiro brought up the question. He's obviously bothered by it. Every Jew is bothered by the fact that maybe we backed the wrong guy <laughs> when we chose Barabbas. Maybe we backed the wrong guy. They all have this insecurity, and they're waiting to be addressed by someone who simply says, I understand where you're coming from. Plenty of people have been in your situation. The answer is simple. It goes back to the Acts of the Apostles. When Peter finally gets over his anxiety after Pentecost, he walks into Jerusalem, and the first thing out of his mouth is, you killed Christ. And the Jews are cut to the heart. And at that point, they say, what must we do to be saved? And he says, you must be baptized. That's it. That's it. And if you're not going to say that, you're not preaching the gospel. And you don't... So what So what? my, my fantasy here is, okay... Okay, Ben, you refuse to be baptized. You're going to go to hell. And then Bishop Barron is going to stand before God, and God's going to say to Bishop Barron, why did you tell Ben about baptism? You're a bishop. He's in hell because you pulled your punch. You wouldn't preach the gospel. And so now you're going to hell, and you're going to spend all eternity looking at Ben Shapiro. Well, that's, that's got to be the worst. This precedent, St. Athanasius said, the floor of hell is paved with the skulls of bishops. And this is precisely this, the issue here. Are you ashamed of the gospel? If you're ashamed of the gospel, you shouldn't be a bishop uh, because God's going to hold you accountable. And that's, that's, the, that's the story. Yes, so I have, not, I have lots of Jews who support me. Some of them have become Catholic, some of them not, but they understand where where what's in my heart and that I have their best interest in mind no matter what the ADL says about me. Do you think that uh, in the 60s and 70s people of, of differing faiths were able to discuss things a lot more uh, respectfully and, and be friends? It seems like a lot of that has gradually deteriorated. Yeah, I think that, sure, the 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 project known as Catholic Jewish Dialogue was born in 1965 with Nostra Aetate. And for 50 years, they danced around, and it's a joke. It was, it's a failed experiment. 
The Jews are our enemies. The Jews are the enemies of the entire human race. That's what St. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2, and he was a Jew. He should know because he was killing Christians. This doesn't mean the end of the world because we're, we love our enemies, okay? We're taught to love our enemies. That's the, that should be the recipe for some type of dialogue and not what we had before, which is basically beginning in 1965, pretending that we don't have any enemies. That's, that's ludicrous. That's ridiculous. It's now out in the open. I've already said 400 Jewish organizations have declared that uh, abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. So the, the, the veil should fall from everyone's eyes. Uh, if you think abortion is something good, I don't. I think that those people are the enemies of civilization and that we have to treat them that way by limiting their ability to kill the unborn. That's an act of charity. And we're not doing the Jews any favor by pretending that it's, it's a legitimate religious option. It's not. Right. There, there should be no capitulation on any of this stuff. No. Where has it led? Has it led to anything other than the erosion of Catholic community, Catholic doctrine, uh, the social order? You allow the Jews to take over your culture, violate secret Judaism, so and what will you get? You'll get abortion. You'll get pornography. You'll get uh, endless wars in the Middle East. You'll get usury. You'll get transgenderism. you get sod. These are all Jewish projects. Because of the Jewish revolution. The whole pharmaceutical thing. The pharmaceutical thing. Borla. Even you experimenting, turning Israelis into lab rats. I need to get, I need to get amped up too. I, I got to match your enthusiasm. I love it. I'm sorry. I'm getting out of hand here. You're, no, the stim, your, your questions are so stimulating. Your questions are so stimulating. Yes. Here we go. They're getting a little buried in here. What's your most, oh, Grateful Servant says, what's your most memorable outpouring of the Holy Spirit? I have no idea. I'll tell, I'll tell you what did not happen. Uh, the charismatics prayed over me and it didn't, I didn't start praying in tongues. So that was my most memorable, not outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Um, Have you seen anyone uh, who you honestly believed was crippled be able to just stand up and walk at a. No, no. My fiance says she has seen it. Oh, I'm not, I'm not, denying, I'm sure it has happened. I'm, if you're asking me, no, no, I, I, didn't, I was, when, I was just, I'm just, I threw that in as, um, why, why do I want to talk about, why did, why do I want to talk to about, uh, to St. John? Because St. John said, Logos is God. Yeah. And that has, that has had a formative effect on, on my life. So I'm, I'm approaching God through reason. I mean, I'm not denying that there is faith is necessary. I'm not denying that. Okay, but I'm saying that reason is powerful and Logos is God. And to the extent that you participate in Logos, you take on uh, characteristics of God. That's what makes us what we are. And that's, so I've been pondering that for a long time and I have not had, I'll, all right, I'll, 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 I had a 
mystical experience of Fatima, if you want to know. Uh, but that's that's not uh, that's not generally the way my life has been. That's interesting. I have a neighbor over here who tries to go over to France to the holy waters because his wife was healed one time over there. Do you are you familiar with that? At Lourdes, yeah, I believe that the yeah. I believe that the Blessed Mother appeared at Lourdes. I believe that the Blessed Mother appeared appeared at Fatima. That's where I had that mystical experience, because I had experiences like Fatima. I could expose Medjugorje as a total hoax and fraud. I could tell it, and the more I looked into it, the more fraudulent it became. Because this is not something you should base your life on. Saint John of the Cross said, "The devil rejoices when people seek private revelations." If God wants to, to give you that experience, that's up to him. But you shouldn't seek it out because it's too dangerous because the devil can fake it very, very easily. We had a request from Habib that I only focus on the Jewish questions. I have no idea what he's talking about. Do you want to talk about Muslims? Does Habib want to talk about Islam? I could talk about Islam uh, if you have a question. I'm, I've become... It's been 10 years now that I've been going to Iran. I am deeply involved with those people, and I'm trying to help them come to some type of solution to the hijab crisis and what is deeper about the hijab crisis. There is a whole section in uh, the uh, Logos Rising on Islam. If that's what this question, I don't know where that's what this question he, he, Yeah, he was trying to direct me what correct questions to read. He's a friend of mine, and uh, so, yeah, that's your your response was was good. I love all these questions. But but Habib was trying to tell me what questions to focus on, which was strange. Uh, some of these, okay, I'm going to skip some questions. Uh, the AMREN conference 2024, does that ring a bell? American Renaissance? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't go. They're not going to invite me. I guarantee you, Jared Taylor is not going to invite me to his conference. I debated him over uh, the the white issue, the race issue. Uh, do you think dinosaurs were real? Yes. Okay, I would I would have guessed that. Let me just scroll to the bottom here. I'm really glad you came on. Uh, I think we. We should do it again. Everybody was really fascinated. I loved all. Well, it's, it, there have been a lot of good questions. I always enjoy having this dialogue with good questions, intelligent questions. This is a, this is a, uh, an incredible community, and yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, Habib uh, came back with Iran is not a Muslim state, though. Oh yes, it is. <laughs> it's the Islamic Republic of Iran. It's not Sunni. It's Shia. And the Sunnis consider the Shia heretics, but it's the, the Islamic, the official title is the Islamic State of Iran. The Islamic Republic, that's what it is. There's a whole story there. It's, it's too complicated. I'd be happy to talk about it if, there, if there's interest, but it's, it's a long, complicated story that I'm involved in uh, uh, right now. Uh, I'd say go ahead. Well, Islam is only half the story of of Iran. Iran, Persia was a ancient culture. Uh, and then it was conquered by a kind of fluke. It was conquered by the, uh, 
the Arab camel jockeys from the middle of the Arabian Peninsula, who was not a high culture, was not a high culture. And they imposed their Islamic culture on the Persians, and it was a shock, and, and many considered it a tragedy. And I don't think it's ever really worked out. Uh, so for about 200 years, there was total silence. And then 200 years later, uh, after the conquest, a poet by the name of Ferdowsi writes the great Iranian epic and saves the Persian language, Farsi. And because of that, keeps, preserves the identity of the Persian people. Because if you want an ethnic identity, you have to have a language. And so Persia is unlike Egypt, for example. Nobody, everybody speaks Arabic in Egypt. That's not Egyptian. That, and they preserve this identity, separate kind of identity, to this day. And so you start to realize that they have this dual consciousness in Iran that is not apparent to the, the eyes of outsiders who simply see it as the Islamic Republic. So anyway, that's, that's what I'm, I've been trying to do. I had a lot of real interesting conversations with a lot of different Iranians, uh, and I'm just starting to understand the, the full dynamic of, of uh, Iranian history as a result of that. Uh, Habib is Lebanese, and he was imported to Canada as a teen, if I understand it correctly. Uh, Habib, correct me if I had that wrong, just, just in case you wanted his background. Yeah, good. That's what I figured with a name like Habib. I figured that. Yes. Uh, Plane Runner would like to know what you think of Paul Washer. Who? Paul Washer. Don't know him. He's, uh, I don't know what his... Um, actual sect is or anything but he's a powerful speaker on on youtube a uh, preacher on youtube and uh i like him i'm sorry never heard of him cool okay uh nevertheless bear says what's next in banking question mark politics that's that's just a, too broad yeah what does let's do let's do let's let's do let's do one more question okay uh, before I, I start, I start, I'm talking too much. Go ahead. Uh, does EMJ think Atlantis was real? No. Okay. Do you, do you, that was our last question, folks. Uh, thanks, everybody, for asking a lot of great questions. Yeah, yeah. thank you. Great questions. I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed the dialogue. I wanted to say uh, thanks to Mike for helping set this up. Um, this has really been a pleasure. It, it, my mind was spinning. I'm going to watch the replay at least two or three times to try to absorb it all. Good. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Give my best to Owen. Ask him if you can post this on our site. Can we post this on our site? Uh, yeah, we have no problem with it. Um, I, we'll just have to, um, yeah, we'll transfer the file. I'll get with Mike on it. We'll, we'll get it to you. Okay. All right. Good. You're welcome. Welcome to post it wherever you like. And thanks again, and God bless. Thank you. Thank you. Peace. Peace. Good night, everybody.